Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park This episode of Check the Locks is brought to you by our friends at Audible. Audible is your one-stop shop for audio entertainment where you can always find the best of what you love or discover something new. That's right. Audible offers an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from mysteries, thrillers, biographies, and of course, true crime. And as an Audible member, you can choose one title a month from their catalog to keep forever, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. Audible members also get access to thousands of podcasts from popular favorites, exclusive new series, and this very podcast you're listening to now. Plus, the Audible app makes it easy to listen anytime, anywhere. While traveling, working out, walking the dog, doing chores, Audible makes listening anywhere easy. And best of all, Check the Locks listeners can try Audible for free for 30 days. So head over to audibletrial.com slash check the locks or click the link in the show notes to start enjoying Audible today. Warning, Check the Locks podcast is a true crime podcast and may contain graphic descriptions of violence, murder, sexual assault, and more. Check the Locks podcast is not appropriate for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Welcome back to Check the Locks Podcast. As always, I'm John Connor. I'm Olivia Cornu. Saying thank you for joining us this week as we dive into yet another truly terrifying true crime case. Before we begin, as always, Olivia, it's wonderful to see you. How are you doing? I'm doing really good. How are you, John? I'm doing really well. I've got my coffee here. If you're in our Facebook group, you know that we are about to start a marathon recording session. Olivia, you've got some travel coming up, so we wanted to make sure we had these episodes knocked out, but I've got a full pot of coffee ready. I've got a monster coffee drink. I think my heart might jump out of my chest by the end of this evening, but I'm ready to get these episodes knocked out. You're doing better than me. I just have my diet ginger ale. Well, over the next couple of weeks, because, you know, we release these episodes two at a time, you know, per week over the next couple of weeks, if you just hear me getting more jittery and jittery, just know that it's because (laughs) these were all done on this one particular evening. So for the next three weeks, John's going to be jittery. No kidding. You guys want to hear a true crime tale? I got tons of true crime (laughs) tales. You want to hear about it? So, (laughs) well, this week is my week and 
I was really excited to bring this case to you, partly because I have a little bit of a personal connection to it, which I can talk a little bit about as we go through, but I had never heard about it until someone had recommended it to me. And as I dove into it, I was like, it is super, super interesting. So I don't know if you want to just kind of jump in. I know you took a look at my notes. Does this look familiar to you? No, and I'm trying to figure out by the show notes how this is related to you or involves you or connected to you in any way, shape or form. Yeah. And we will uh, talk about it as we jump in. But like I said, I'm really excited for you to hear about it. I'm excited for the listeners to hear about it. And, you know, again, I did not know about this. And so I always wonder if this is something that's well known by other people. So so what do you say? Should we just jump into it? Yeah, let's get started. All right. Awesome. Well, this week's story takes place in the town of Katie's, Kentucky in October of 2014. Now, Katie's is a small town in Trigg County, and it has a population of about 2,540 people. So, I mean, when we're talking small town, we're talking small town. That's a small town. It is very small. And it's filled with rolling farmlands and tobacco barns. The town also has a lot of historic homes and beautiful streets. And when I was talking about that personal connection, my father-in-law is actually from Katie's, Kentucky. I've been there, gone fishing there at the marina. It's a very nice marina, but it's a, a, a really a lovely town. Interesting. Who knew? All right, well, let's keep going. Yeah. Now, additionally, Katie's is one of the safest places to live in the state of Kentucky. The town has a total crime risk index score of 34, which is actually 37 points below the statewide score of 71. And nestled in this quiet part of Western Kentucky lived Lindsay, Joy, Emily, and Ryan, the Champion family. Lindsay was the father of the home and had moved to Katie's when he was a young boy in the 1950s. Friends and family described Lindsay as a funny guy with a dry sense of humor. And while he was in high school, he met his future wife, Joy. The couple married in July of 1972, shortly after they both graduated. Joy was a school teacher who loved her students, and Lindsay was the director of a farmer's credit bureau and was an elder at the family's church. The pair were deeply in love and devoted to each other, but they wanted nothing more than a child. However, this would prove to be challenging for the couple as Joy had had several miscarriages. And after years of trying and emotional ups and downs, the couple decided to adopt a baby boy named Ryan. Ryan was born in September of 1978, and the champions would adopt him by January of the following year. The pair instantly fell in love with the boy and would constantly dote on him. And when Ryan was five years old, the couple found themselves on the end of quite a happy surprise. Joy was pregnant. Their daughter, Emily, was born April 29th, 1983. And as they did with Ryan, the champions adored Emily. But like any siblings, as they grew up, Emily and Ryan didn't always get along. The family has said that when Emily would get attention, Ryan would act out hoping to shift the focus to him. And it's important to remember that this is a trait that's very normal in homes with more than one child. As they grew up, Emily and Ryan seemed to move in different directions. Emily went to college to pursue her dream of being a veterinarian. Ryan, while quite smart, showed little ambition and didn't seem to know what direction to take. Possibly looking for his calling, he joined the army while in his mid-20s. Lindsay and Joy were proud of their son and believed that the military would be a great fit for him. And after eight years of service and now in his 30s, Ryan was discharged. He then moved back to the nearby city of Oak Grove. Now, at this time, Emily was 31 years old and living in Louisiana, where she worked as a horse vet at a racetrack. And Lindsay and Joy had retired and were enjoying their time together. So before we go any further, I kind of wanted to pick your brain, Olivia. What do you think of this family family? Is anything sounding out of place to you? Anything like that? What are your thoughts before we go a little further? 
It seems like just a normal family, like Emily and Ryan are a boy and a girl sibling. Obviously, they're going to go in different directions. Boys have a harder time, no offense, trying to figure out what they're going to do in life most of the time. Whereas I feel like majority of women are like, yep, this is what I'm going to do and this is how I'm going to do it. And then I'm like wondering how is this related to me in any way, given that she worked at racetracks in Louisiana. But it seems like once we did a little digging that she's not from my part of town, you know, because my dad was in the race horse business my entire life. So, but I'm intrigued. Yeah. And for me, as I was going through, I was like, man, a lot of the relationship dynamics between the two made a lot of sense to me because I'm the oldest of four. So when any Mm -hmm. of the other kids were getting attention, everyone was like, hey, look at me. You know what I mean? Right. So it seemed very normal. Yeah, nothing out of nothing seems out of the ordinary for me with these two siblings. No, I definitely agree. And that's how I felt as I was going through the research. Now, in October of 2014, Emily returned home from Louisiana to spend time with her parents. On Saturday, the 25th, Emily participated in Katie's Urban Bourbon Half Marathon. Later that evening, Lindsay and Joy would attend a friend's birthday party. The following morning, Lindsay and Joy headed out for service at the Katie's Church of Christ, and Emily, still tired from running her half marathon the day before, decided to stay home and rest. After the service was over, Lindsay and Joy Champion returned home to visit with their daughter. Now, Lindsay Champion's sister, Lisa, actually lived across the street from her brother and his family. And at around 11 a.m., she heard what sounded like loud gunshots coming from her brother's home. Thinking that it was unusual to hear shots at that time of the day, Lisa got up to investigate, and it was then that she heard a frantic knocking at her door and someone yelling, Lisa, Lisa. When she opened the door, Lisa was greeted by a disturbing sight. There was her nephew, Ryan Champion. His wrists were bound in duct tape, and he was holding a pistol. He told Lisa that she needed to call 911. While on the phone with the dispatcher, Ryan told his aunt that a man who liked his sister Emily had broken into the house. He also advised his aunt to have the dispatcher send an ambulance. Lisa removed the duct tape from Ryan's wrist and drove with him across the street to the champion's home. Now, in an interview, Lisa said that when she arrived, she asked Ryan where the rest of the family was. He shared that they were inside the house, but she did not want to go inside. But Lisa, concerned for her brother and his family, decided to go in. As she approached the home, she discovered a bullet hole in the glass front door. And upon entering, Lisa made yet another terrible discovery. Lindsay, Joy, and Emily Champion had all been shot and killed, gunned down in their own home. It was then that first responders began to arrive on the scene, including former Trigg County Sheriff Ray Burnham. Burnham was familiar with the family as Joy Champion had been one of his elementary school teachers. The local authorities knew that they were going to need extra help with this case immediately, and they decided to call in the Kentucky State Police. And according to State Police Sergeant Brett Miller, it was one of the worst crime scenes that he had ever seen. Lindsay Champion had been shot in the head and was found on a concrete landing off the side of the family home. Emily Champion was found inside the home. Her head had been wrapped in duct tape from nose to chin roughly seven to eight times. Both her hands and her feet had been bound with tape as well, and she had been shot twice in the head. Joy Champion was found laying face down, and she had been shot in the front of her face. And in addition to the family, the police found a fourth body, an unidentified man. With Ryan Champion being the only survivor, police hoped that he would be able to shed light on the tragic events that happened in the home. And according to Ryan, he had been home visiting his sister. While they were hanging out, he said that he heard someone enter the home, but assumed it was his parents returning from Sunday service. But Ryan said he discovered it was a man that he knew, 22-year-old Vito Resovardo. Ryan told police that Resovardo had a pistol in one hand and a roll of duct tape in the other. 
He also shared that he had met Reservardo only a few days before the incident, but that he had become obsessed with Emily. According to Champion, Reservardo held the gun on him and told him if he did anything stupid, he would hurt Emily. Ryan said Reservado proceeded to tape him up first and then proceeded to tape up Emily. It was then that Lindsay and Joy Champion returned home. Again, according to Ryan, Vito Reservado took off running through the front door. Ryan told police that only a few moments later, he heard gunshots outside. Then Reservado re-entered the home, walked up to Emily, and executed her. Ryan said that at that point, he decided to make a move against his attacker. With his hands bound, he told police that he attacked Reservardo and was able to wrestle the gun away from him. He told police that at that point, he was able to shoot Reservardo in the head. So, Olivia, what are you thinking of this story so far? Well, my first thought before Vito Reservardo got brought into the picture was that Ryan Champion is a liar. I thought that he taped himself up and they were going to walk over there and find his whole family murdered. But now that Vito Reservardo's in the picture, I don't know if he's telling the truth, if Vito really went after them or what. So I'm still just kind of on the fence now. I'm not really sure where this is going to go. It could go one of two ways. Yeah, and I will tell you, that's how I was feeling when I was doing the research as well. I was like, man, like, could have been this guy. There could be something fishy going on. So I was really anxious, like, get in and learn as much as I could. It just kind of sunk its hooks in me. Well, keep going. All right. Well, remember, Katie's is a small town and the word of the murders quickly spread, sending shockwaves of terror and disbelief through the community. Police now had Champion's version of the events, but they could still see no motive for Reservardo to murder the family. Authorities continued their investigation, but couldn't seem to find a single person who had any issue with the Champion family. In fact, it seemed that anyone who knew them loved them. They then decided to take a closer look at Reservardo. He was a local man with a young son and no criminal background, so the police were baffled by his involvement in the murders. And why would someone Ryan met only days prior be instantly obsessed with his sister? And even if he had, why would he murder the woman that he was so in love with? It just didn't seem to make any sense. And at that point, the police knew they needed to continue speaking with Ryan Champion. Now again, according to Ryan, he had recently hired Reservardo to do some work for him. Ryan worked odd jobs and construction work, like remodeling bathrooms and things of that nature. He told police that Reservado seemed to be down on his luck and he hired him to help with some jobs. He then told police that he and Vito met on Thursday, October 23rd, and he had brought him to his parents' home to grab some tools. According to Ryan, it was there that Reservado met Emily Champion, and supposedly he became instantly fixated on her. And Ryan shared with police that he was scared for his sister's safety. He told detectives that Vito began making suggestive and inappropriate comments about Emily. He also shared that the comments made him extremely uncomfortable and he ended their working relationship that same day. And as police worked to corroborate his story, Ryan Champion showed up on television. The day after the murders, Ryan did an interview telling his story to a local news channel at the scene of the crime. And over the next few days, Champion would continue to give interviews to the local news. Meanwhile, police continued to look into Vito Reservato. And while interviewing his roommates, they received some interesting information. According to the roommates, Vito had been down on his luck and badly needed money. But one day, out of nowhere, it seemed that things had changed and Vito was walking around feeling happy and not a care in the world. When his friends asked what had changed, Vito shared that he had been hired for a job and that he and his baby would be taken care of. According to the roommates, Vito told them that this job was going to pay him roughly $30,000. 
And when his roommates pressed him on this particular job, Vito shared a shocking piece of information with all of his friends. A boy named Ryan had hired him to kill three people. And to police, this story seemed to make sense. Ryan was the only one to walk away completely uninjured that day. In fact, he didn't even have a cut or a scrape from wrestling the gun away from Reservato. And as they continued their investigation, the police called Ryan Champion back to the scene of the crime a few days later. Detectives had Ryan walk them through the events repeatedly for roughly two and a half hours. And at the end, detectives didn't feel that his story added up. Ryan claimed that after Vito had shot his family, he put the gun in his face. But when he pulled the trigger, he was out of ammo. Ryan claimed that Reservato entered a new magazine into the pistol, and it was then that he attacked. However, the gun that he had used only carried seven rounds of ammunition. Four bullets had been fired towards Lindsay Champion, two at Joy Champion, and another four at Emily Champion, for a total of 10 rounds fired. Because of this, detectives believed that Ryan was lying about what had happened on the day of the murders. But the question remained, why would Ryan Champion want his family murdered? After the reenactment, the surviving champion was brought in for further questioning, and what started as an interview quickly turned into an interrogation. Ryan continued to deny that he had anything to do with the murder of his family, but Sergeant Miller had no issue telling Ryan Champion that he knew he was involved and was determined to prove it. However, before they could make an arrest, police still needed evidence to link Champion to the murder of his family, and this is when they began to revisit the evidence from the scene of the crime. From the beginning, Ryan had claimed that he had been bound with duct tape first because he was the biggest threat to Vito Reservato. Police believed that this was a lie and hoped that by examining the tape, they could prove that he was in fact tied up last. They examined the end of the roll of tape found on the floor at the champion's home and noticed its distinct tear pattern. Then, investigators examined the tape that was removed from Ryan's wrist by his Aunt Lisa. The edge of that tape matched the tear from the roll perfectly. This proved that Ryan Champion was the last person to be tied up with that particular roll of tape. So before we go any further, where are you at now, Olivia? What are you thinking? What are your thoughts? I need to know now why Ryan Champion killed his family. Because you don't even have to get through the rest of it and he did it. But why? Yeah, I'm right there with you. I was like, well, seems like they got their guy. And with this key piece of information, police were able to obtain a warrant for Champion's arrest. He was picked up and charged with the murder of his father, mother, and sister. He was also charged with the kidnapping of Emily because of how heavily bound in the tape she was. But the question of motive still remained. Why would Ryan want his family dead? And why did Vito Reservato end up dying too? But it was then that police received an unexpected tip from a resident of Oak Grove. The man told police that he saw Ryan, Vito, and a woman that he didn't recognize eating at a Waffle House in town only about five days before the murder. Police followed up on the tip and they were able to recover surveillance footage from that day. This meant that Ryan had lied to the police and in fact known Vito for longer than three days like he originally claimed. Additionally, police were able to identify the woman in the video as Ann Plotkin. And when they heard the name, it sounded eerily familiar. On the day of the murders, Ryan told police that they needed to speak with a woman named Ann Plotkin who could verify his story about Vito being obsessed with his sister Emily. According to Ryan, Vito had previously dated Plotkin's daughter, and as they investigated, police learned that Plotkin and Champion had known each other for years. In fact, she was a vocal advocate for Ryan after his arrest. And when detectives interviewed Plotkin, they learned that the pair were more than just friends. 
In fact, the two were romantically involved, and according to Anne, Ryan was her, quote, ride-or-die partner. But police still needed to find out what Anne was doing with Ryan and Vito at the Waffle House on that day. Investigators began to turn up the intensity of the interview. They asked Plotkin if there were any texts on her phone between herself and Champion. Plotkin said no, but immediately picked up her phone and began tapping away. And when police asked her if she was deleting messages, she denied it. Ann Plotkin was now an additional suspect in the murder of the Champion family. Because of this, police quickly acquired search warrants for the phone records and Facebook accounts of Plotkin, Champion, and Reservado. And remember, in this time in history, like Facebook was the big social media. And when reviewing the social media contact between the three, the picture of what happened began to come clear. Ann Plotkin had served as the middleman between Champion and Reservado. Neither men were ever to contact the other directly. If either needed to make contact, they would reach out to Plotkin, who would pass on the message. Because of this, police were able to determine that Ann Plotkin was, in fact, an active participant in the planning and murder of Lindsay Joy and Emily Champion. She was quickly arrested and charged with complicity to commit capital murder. After Ryan's arrest, another ex-girlfriend came forward. She shared with police that whenever someone brought up Ryan's family, he would get red in the face angry. He would begin cussing and shouting. The woman also shared that Ryan felt less than compared to his successful sister. I mean, she had gone to college, chased her dreams, and achieved them, while Ryan had been discharged from the military and couldn't hold a job. According to friends and family, Ryan and Emily were always treated equally, but Ryan believed that his sister was the favored child and he would forever be in her shadow. Additionally, with Ryan being the only surviving family member, he would be entitled to his family's estate. He would have a house, a little land, and some money. Police also learned that shortly before the murders, Lindsay Champion was planning on building an addition to the home. Ryan asked his father for the job, but fearing his son didn't have the experience or expertise, he denied him. Police believe that all of these factors played a part in why Ryan Champion would murder his family. They also believe that Ryan himself, not Vito Reservardo, committed the murders on that October day. The victims had been shot in the head, and according to Reservado's family and friends, he hated guns and was simply uncomfortable around them. But Ryan had served in the military, and because of this, he would be comfortable with them and also have firearm experience. Authorities believe that Ryan murdered his family and then turned the gun on Reservado to leave no witnesses. A little over two years after the murder, Ryan Champion appeared before Judge C.A. Woodall in the Trigg County Circuit Court. On December 8, 2016, Ryan Champion entered guilty pleas for the murder and kidnapping charges. By doing so, Champion avoided the death penalty and was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for each charge. In 2017, Ann Plotkin pled guilty to three counts of complicity to murder. She was sentenced to 22 years in prison. On Thursday, February 7, 2019, Plotkin appeared in front of a parole board requesting an early medical release for a terminal illness. The board denied her request, and Ann Plotkin died from her illness the following day. So that's this week's story. What are you thinking? Where's your head at? That was a good one, and I think it was good in the sense of how it was written out and how I was listening. I was on the fence. There was moments where I was like, okay, the brother for sure did it. And then I was like, okay, maybe this guy really did kill him, Vito, because people do act in weird ways and you never know. He's picking up a stranger, bringing him to the house to work on some odd jobs. He could be one of these obsessive compulsive types that we talk about every week. You know, that was actually a serial killer or a murderer. I mean, Ryan had a good story going for a while until he didn't. 
Um, but I still just don't get why anyone would really want to kill their family. It seemed like his upbringing was fine. They were comfortable in their assets and their sibling banter just seemed like normal brother, sister shenanigans that everyone goes through. Yeah. And I think that's going to be the forever question because while police have their theories and family have their theories, Ryan has never said, this is why I did it. So, you know, you can really only speculate, but you know, I know his family and, and from what I've heard, again, I know people who live in Katie's and knew this family. The general consensus, at least from what I've heard is that, it was about getting the money, getting the estate. This is now mine. But it's just such a tragic thing to hear about this family. You know what I mean? Like just good, hardworking people. The parents had retired. Their daughter was a veterinarian. And even though Ryan had a hard time getting things together, it sounds like his parents really loved him and would have done mm-hmm. anything for him, you know? So it's just heartbreaking. As I'm sure they did, you know, adopted or not. Like they chose that path and they wanted to bring a child into their family. And biological or adopted, I don't think parents care. And I just don't get why he thought his childhood was so bad or what caused him to kill his family. I won't say that his childhood was bad, but like what in his life was so wrong that he needed to kill his mother, his father and his sister and a strange man. Yeah, you got to have a fall guy, you know. Yeah. And what was really interesting is in the research, some of the family were talking about the fact that they had to plan the burials, you know, and had to get everything ready to bury their family members. And Ryan at that point was still free. And they were in the funeral home when they found out that he'd been arrested and his extended family were suspicious, but they didn't want to confront him about it or cut him off in case he said something that would lead to the truth. So they're all in this funeral home getting preparations ready. And they found out and they were like, it was like a Sunday church service. Cause we're like, we can plan these things. We're safe. We don't have to worry about him trying to hurt anybody else. Anything like that. Right. So this is a crazy story all around. It really was. Well, let me ask you this deadbolt test, right? When we're talking about our scale of one to 10, you know, is this case going to stick with you? Where is it landed for you? I'm going to give it a six. I think this case will stick with me. It's very unsettling to know that a brother could kill his parents and his sister for really property. I mean, that's all that we have as far as the motive right now. I just think it's sad. I think that three innocent lives, four innocent lives were taken and all for like a house, money, you know, fortune, anything. It's sad because what about Vito's family. Like they've lost a child of a senseless act. There was no reason for Vito to be there. There was no reason for him to get murdered. You know, it was just a lot of things that went wrong. You know, Vito was obviously probably not the best guy if he was looking forward to 30 grand for killing three people. But honestly, it's someone who died. And I just think that it's a lot of senseless lives lost. Yeah. And I also have the question of like, was he actually going to go through with it, you know, or it, Again, speculation, you know, was he killed because he wouldn't go through with it? We don't know. You know, we know detectives believe that Ryan inevitably killed everyone in the home. But is that because Vito was there to do it and he decided that he couldn't, you know? Right, right. So, John, I liked this case. Where do you put this on your deadbolt test? So for me, I'm going to put this slightly higher. I'm going to put it in eight. And I know I talk about this a lot, but I looked at this case a lot through the eyes of Lindsay and Joy, through the eyes of the parents, because this is a child that you just wanted 
so badly, you know, and you adopt this child and you bring them into your life and you love them like they're your own and they become your own and you spend your entire life doting on them and doing, you know, anything that you can to help them succeed. And again, by all accounts, it sounds like they were amazing parents and and did everything that they could to give their children the best life possible. And to think that somebody that you love in that way, somebody that you changed their diapers, you pushed them on a swing, you you know took them to their first day of school would be the person that takes your life is terrifying to me. And do I think I will ever have to worry about that with Millie? I hope not. She's a big, sensitive kid. I don't think I'll ever have to worry about that. But we hear about cases. I forget the, the kid's name, but we did the case where the kid killed his parents and then threw a house party. And I think I put that one about an eight as well, because it's like, this is a life that you brought in, you've given everything to, and it's like the ultimate betrayal at the end, you know? So for that reason, I'm going to put it in an eight, but it, you know, it hit me harder than I, I thought it was going to. Well, it was definitely a doozy for this week, so... Well, I'm glad that you enjoyed it. And that is where we land on the deadbolt test for this week's episode. Olivia is putting it at a six. I'm coming through with an eight, but we want to know where do the champion murders fall on your deadbolt test? You can let us know. Reach out to us on Instagram at check the locks pod. Hit us up on Twitter at check the locks. And if you're not in our Facebook group, come hang out with us. We want to hear from you. I don't know if you saw it, Olivia, but I put a post in the group asking where everybody was from. And it's amazing to see these listeners from all over the country, Canada. I know that we have people listening in Australia and the UK and just knowing that there are so many people that are there hanging out and they're invested in what we do and they care about it. It's like the best part of doing the show. So if you are not in the Facebook group, come hang out with us. We would absolutely love to spend some time with you. I don't know about you, Olivia, but this was a killer episode. I could definitely use a palate cleanser. You got a five-star review for us? I do. This week's five-star review comes from HADC704. They said, I love listening to y'all. I love true crime, and I find there are so many I was not aware of. So thank you, HADC704, for leaving us a five-star review. I'm glad you came across our podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for taking the time to leave us that review and letting us know what you think. And we are so glad that you're enjoying the cases that we're doing. I know that's a big thing for Olivia and I is to really kind of dive into cases that we're not familiar with. So the fact that you know you enjoy that really does mean a lot to us. And please, we would love to send you some stuff just for leaving that review. Reach out to us on Instagram at Check the Locks Pod. You can find us on Twitter at Check the Locks. If you're on our Facebook group, you can reach out there and let us know. And if you're not a social person, that is totally fine. Head over to CheckTheLocksPod.com. Click that email button. Send us an email. Let us know it's you and we would love to send you some stuff. And Olivia, if someone wants to have their five-star review read in the podcast, what is the best way to do that? Well, they need to hop on over to the Apple Podcast app, go to our show's homepage, scroll where you see all five stars, click all five stars, and just leave us a little one-liner. Tell us what you like about the podcast. And if you don't like things, let us know too. We want it, We want good feedback. We like constructive criticism, but we really like good five-star reviews. So leave us a review and we'll send you some swag. A hundred percent. And I know I talk about this every single week, but these reviews mean so much to us. They help us get into other shows recommendations. They help listeners find us and to become part of the community. And ultimately that's all that we're trying to do is to grow this community as, as far as we can and just share what we do with as many people as possible. So if you've taken the time to leave us a review, thank you so much for doing that. And if you haven't, just like Olivia said, head over to Apple Podcasts. You can actually go into the description of this show and use the link as a cheat code. We would love to hear from you. 
And as always, if you are interested in financially supporting Check the Locks, you can do that by becoming a patron. Head over to patreon.com forward slash check the locks. You can sign up today. We've got a bunch of great tiers, exclusive t-shirts, coffee mugs, stickers, all sorts of stuff just for being a patron. So if you like what we do, you want to help us keep the lights on, that is the best way to do that. And if you cannot financially support the show, we definitely understand just listening and sharing what we do every week with your friends and family means just as much, if not more. So if you're hanging out with us every week, you are sharing the show with your friends, your family. Again, that is how we're going to grow this community. Just know that from the bottom of our hearts, we greatly, greatly appreciate it. That is all that we have for this week's episode. Please make sure that you are subscribed to check the locks on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. We will see you next week with a brand new, truly terrifying true crime case. But until then, don't forget to check the locks. See you next week. Bye-bye.